Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Monday, our lives are set to change. The 19th of July has been dubbed by the government as Freedom Day, when life irreversibly, we're told, returns to normal. We will allow all businesses to reopen. We will end the one metre plus rule on social distancing and the legal obligation to wear a face covering. But with a surge in coronavirus infections and deaths, the risks haven't completely gone away. And I cannot say this powerfully or emphatically enough. This pandemic is not over. From the very start of the pandemic, Britain has been a few weeks behind. We watched as the virus spread in other countries before it hit our shores. We could see how they dealt with it, what worked and what really didn't. Now, as we approach Freedom Day, we're looking at three countries who've already had theirs with varying degrees of success. Israel is seeing a surge in new cases. As a result, the country's prime minister is now encouraging Israelis to go back to wearing masks. Sydney could face another month of lockdown if case numbers continue to grow. There are growing concerns about an increase in COVID cases in some New York City neighborhoods. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Freedom Day. COVID lessons from around the world. I'm Will Pavia. I'm the New York correspondent for The Times. We're talking to you in the run-up to what we're calling Freedom Day, July the 19th. You've had your Freedom Day. Tell me about that. How did it feel? Well, I think it, it felt here like a huge surge of energy. New York had been sort of steadily unlocking for a few months, but I do remember that week, I think it was June 15th, when Governor Cuomo relaxed most of the restrictions. Now we get back to living in life. The state mandates that have proven right and correct and brought us through this pandemic are relaxed as of today. Effective immediately. The bars were very full and there was a few weekends where the beaches on Coney Island were packed and people were going out. There was a real sort of buzz actually in the air after that happened. And how did life change? New York has had has sort of adapted to everything being outside and because it's quite hot at the moment... The restaurants were sort of already packed. What I have noticed more recently is that, you know, you look inside the bar that you're sitting outside and it is stuffed with people not wearing masks. And it's a very strange sight <laughs> if you've been sort of, you know, observing all these. And, and New York had been very, very cautious in terms of observing sort of mask regulations and, and things like that. People would walk down the street 
in a mask. I mean, I, I think the sort of thinking was that New York is sort of like one giant cruise ship and it's impossible to social distance. And so you're just going to wear a mask at all times and people would take them off to run in the park and you'd see people, you know. But it was quite extraordinary. For, for a, a good year, it was people just masked up the whole time. And, and that's partly a reflex because of, you know, how badly the city was hit last year. Have people gone back to the, their offices? Have they gone back to work? Well, not yet, or at least not yet in huge numbers. Midtown still feels pretty empty, and a lot of those big office blocks are sort of reopening in September. Some of the big banks have said, you have to be back, you have to start coming back in September. But that really feels like something that hasn't quite been worked out yet. But that's really one of the big questions, whether Midtown comes back to what it was, because it's been very, very empty, and a lot of the shops and restaurants have been really struggling there. Quite a famous chef here opened a very fancy restaurant right in the middle of Midtown a few months ago. And that was seen as a sort of statement of faith that, that it would recover. But that's not entirely certain yet. Tell me about public confidence in New York. You know, we know what's coming on Monday, but there's been a lot of mixed messaging about just how much we should choose to amend our behaviour now even if the restrictions are lifted. Have people in New York completely gone back to the way life was? I mean, they're still wandering around with masks strapped to their elbow. And there's still, I suppose, there's less sense of social distancing in bars and, and restaurants, but you're still queuing up in the supermarket in a sort of long line, sort of observing the sort of four or five feet or whatever it is. I think the city is, it still feels a little bit confused, like people aren't quite sure where we are. We see reports of the Delta variant and that cases have started to rise again. Schools are supposed to go back fully filled in, instead of the partial sort of classrooms that we had last year. But kids are still going to be wearing masks at the moment because they're unvaccinated. So there's lots of things that haven't quite gone back to normal. And well, last year, we saw some really harrowing images coming out of New York. You know, the virus was running rampant. So many people had died of it that the morgues had run out of space. It was horrendous. This is a remarkable turnaround. Has it now managed to reopen? Because, you know, after what looked like a slow start... America really seems to have rolled out vaccinations at super speed. How has that happened? It all seemed a little bit chaotic. No one was quite sure who was allowed to get vaccinated. There were these huge queues in Florida, people sitting outside these these sort of vaccination centres. So it all felt a little bit, well, extremely uneven. And states had sort of been left to handle it themselves. And that seems to have been part of the problem. When President Biden came into office, it started to feel like the federal government was getting much more involved in the process and they were opening vaccination centres and they had a deal with pharmacies to sort of allow pharmacies to provide vaccinations. So suddenly you just saw vaccination rate kind of going up. By about April, vaccines were available to everyone. And I remember covering a court case down in, in Lower Manhattan and one of the people who was queuing up with me hadn't been vaccinated and she saw that there was a, a vaccination centre in the street and so she went and got vaccinated while we were waiting for the court to open. So it felt like there were really sort of vaccines were everywhere and then it, it became the problem of like trying to persuade people who weren't getting vaccinated. So then you had sort of vaccination centres at subway stations where you could get vaccinated and they give you a free subway ticket and states ran sort of vaccination lotteries and you could get a free beer with your vaccine and free pizza and there's all kinds of, you know, 
sort of giveaways to try and entice people to get vaccinated. And that's actually still something that they're struggling with. But essentially, the, va- the vaccination rate in New York reached sort of 70% of adults had had at least one shot. And that was the that was the sort of marker. Now, the city is still, it's still pretty uneven. So in Manhattan, the vaccination rate is very high. I read recently that in the financial district in lower Manhattan, the vaccination rate among adults was like 98%. But in some parts of the city, it's very, very low. And, and that's going to be a real problem, I think, going forward. So there's parts of Queens and Brooklyn, which have much lower rates. Staten Island in particular has much lower rates of vaccination. And that's where the positivity rate is growing now. And actually, the positivity rate is is growing across the city. I mean, it's, it's still at 0.87%, according to sort of figures today, or, or rather that's the, that's the sort of average, but it's, it's going up. And, you know, I mean, I remember when it was nearly at 10%, but still it, the fact that it's starting to rise again is, is, is a cause for concern. We'll watch how the situation in New York unfolds. In the meantime, Let's spin the globe and find out how freedom looks in Australia. Until now, its pursuit of a COVID-zero strategy through strict lockdowns early on and a tough border policy has made Australia the envy of the world, with one of the lowest COVID death rates. Life seemed to go back to something like normal quite early on. But the Australian strategy was slow on one vital part of the COVID armoury – vaccines. I asked Bernard Lagan, the Times Australia correspondent, how the country is weathering the pandemic. In Sydney, we had a pretty brief lockdown at the height of the pandemic in March last year. And then we opened up again and quite gradually, but by midway through last year, we could do most things that we're already doing. We could go to big sporting events with lots of people, stadiums full. We could go and have a drink and stand up and we get close to people, whatever, and there were no restrictions on that. We didn't have to wear masks. Did everyone go back to their offices? Was it sort of life as normal? Well, not quite, no. There was a bit of reluctance to go back to offices. Uh, I would say in Sydney, probably two-thirds of people had gone back to the office by the time of the most recent outbreak, less so in Melbourne. Now, Melbourne had a 112-day lockdown late last year. Now, Melbourne being Australia's second largest city, and that's had lingering effects. There was just a report out saying very few people have gone back to their offices in Melbourne. They're worried about another lockdown. Really? Was it voluntarily? Were people given a choice and they've just chosen not to go back? Or is it that they're restricting access? No, largely people were given a choice. And people have made it pretty clear in Melbourne, at least, and to an extent in Sydney, they didn't want to go back to offices. In those buildings where the layout's been changed and social distancing measures put in place, that's different. But that's been reasonably limited until this point. I think Australian employers are still trying to figure this out. So some of those changes might be permanent? I think they will be. Deloitte Consulting, a big consulting company, put out a report just today looking ahead and they said, number one, it's going to take Melbourne four years to recover from lockdown. And when Deloitte say it'll take four years, so that's really interesting because, you know, we've sort of looked at Freedom Day as the return to normality, four years for a proper return to normality. Is that in terms of the economy being back to where it was or is it in terms of people's behaviour? That's largely in terms of people's behaviour. So that's people who are prepared to come into their old office and work and people who are prepared to catch a train or a tram. Melbourne has trams as well 
into the CBD to do shopping or whatever. So one of the things the report says, there is a real reluctance still for people in Melbourne to use public transport. Now, that's that's pretty amazing that that is still there because that lockdown we're talking about ended on October, which, you know, is quite a long, that's more than half a year ago, and people are still very reluctant to use public transport in Melbourne. I think confidence was really hurt in Melbourne. People were pretty shattered by the length of that lockdown. 112 days is a long, long time. And as I say, it was one of the most, one of the strictest lockdowns in the West. In New South Wales, we have, or a couple of things, we haven't had the, until now, we haven't had the kind of outbreak Melbourne had. Number two, we have a a Liberal government, which is a centre-right government, which, like the national government in Australia, the Morrison government, has some ideological reservations about shutting down in the manner Melbourne did. Now, Melbourne's is a Labor government, West Australia is a Labor government, South Australia is a Labor government, and Queensland is a Labor government. These are all state governments. They've had no hesitation at all about going into snap lockdowns, quite long ones sometimes, and particularly closing their borders to the rest of Australia when other parts of Australia are having an outbreak. So there's a real difference between the way the state governments and the national government in Australia have handled this. And it is ideological because the only sort of centre-right governments in power in Australia are the Morrison, the national government, and the government of New South Wales. Sydney, Australia's largest city, was forced into lockdown again three weeks ago after a spike in cases. The reality is we are not out of the woods yet, not by a long way. We are now in an extremely critical period. We must stay locked down while we keep this virus trapped. The first thing that went wrong was an unvaccinated limousine driver, professionally employed to ferry a US flight crew around Sydney. Number one, he was supposed to be vaccinated, but he wasn't. And he caught the Delta variant of COVID off the flight crew. Now, I know that you have Delta in the UK and you will know that it's twice as transmissible as former strains we've had here. So it was circulating for a period and before this man was picked up as having Delta. And by that stage, it spread to quite a few people in Sydney's eastern suburbs. So that's that was the beginning of it. The... Big problem in Australia is this. We are not vaccinated. Nothing like you are in the UK. What are the vaccination rates like? Right, but very low. So whereas the UK, I think, last figure I saw, 86% of people, of adults in the UK have had at least one jab. The figure here is somewhere under 20% for one jab. Oh, so that's a long way behind. It's a long, long way behind. So you can basically say that a lot of the Australian population is is not defended. And the vaccination rates are certainly lower in small towns and, and certainly much lower in the outback, in remote Aboriginal communities, for instance. So this is a real problem. And then you say, well, why is the Australian vaccination rate so low? Partly by accident, we had a lot of faith in a vaccine that was being locally developed at the University of Queensland, and at the last minute it fell over. It was not able to be used. Second thing was AstraZeneca has had a bad rap from some of the chief health officers in Australia. 
not just the chief health officers in the states, but also at a national government level. Now, these are doctors who are charged with delivering health advice, uh, health advice to governments. And the big set of advice that they have been giving, which the governments have accepted, is that AstraZeneca should not be given to anyone under 60. And the reason for that is, is the quite well-known but very rare problems with blood clotting. Now, that's certainly a much more restrictive view of AstraZeneca that's been taken in the UK. I think I could be wrong, but I think the UK allows people well under 60 to have AstraZeneca. Yeah, everyone over 40. Everyone over 40. We invest heavily in AstraZeneca. I mean, we uh, obtained a licence for it to be manufactured here. We have been making a million doses a day. The difficulty is, is that it's had such a bad rap that there is real and, and quite unjustified hesitancy about taking AstraZeneca. And Pfizer, the alternative, is very hard to get. So we basically haven't got enough vaccine that people are willing to take. Now, I have to say there's been a development today on this. The New South Wales government, of which Sydney is the capital, have said, look, we're very worried about this outbreak in Sydney. It's, it's obviously accelerating. It's, the lockdown isn't working. We are going to offer AstraZeneca at our mass vaccination centres to people under 60. Will people under 60 want it now? Well, they're turning up. Yeah, they're saying they want it. They say they're going to take it. And that has prompted the main advisers to the federal government, to the national government tonight, to call an urgent meeting and to review the advice they have been giving on AstraZeneca as well. So I think it's likely that by sometime this week that the advice to the national government will change and that AstraZeneca will be permitted to be given to a younger cohort. And so are you back in lockdown now? What restrictions have had to be reapplied? We've been in lockdown for two weeks. It's already been extended by a week, so it's now supposed to... It will be three weeks of this coming Friday when it's supposed to lift. But the Premier of New South Wales, who is our main political leader, has made quite clear today that she doesn't expect that it will lift. So I think we're looking at a minimum month-long lockdown in Sydney and possibly, I would think, five. Or, it could even go to five or six weeks. And are people wearing masks again? Do you have track and trace? They don't have to wear masks if they're outside, but they have to wear masks if they go into a shop or if they go into an apartment building or something like that. But, you know, with that in mind, we do have Freedom Day coming up next week. What lessons can we learn from the Australian experience? Well, I, I think now it's, the Australian experience is so different from, what, from what, you're, uh, what you're going to do. I mean, I think when I last checked, I thought that new infections in the UK are running around about 700 a day, 800 a day. Is that right? Oh, it's actually up to more than 40,000 a day now. Yeah, I mean, it's way, way ahead of us. We have put a lot of emphasis on contact tracing, which I'm sure the UK did, but there comes a point where the contract tracing just can't keep up. I can't imagine that anyone in the UK can keep up contract tracing properly with, with that number of new infections. We're actually thinking of loosening that so that the app will be able to pick up fewer people. It'll be less sort of sensitive. The fact that the UK is now so well vaccinated changes the equation completely. It's very, very hard now to compare the experience of both countries. We were still shut off from the rest of the world. It was very hard to fly in here. And I have to say, also very hard to fly out. I mean, I, I couldn't decide to fly out tomorrow. I'd have to get special permission to do it if I wanted to. At some stage, we are going to have to unlock ourselves. 
And what's taken root in Australia and more particularly in New Zealand is a mindset, I think, that's taken hold, which says, well, look, you know, we're doing perfectly well without the rest of the world. There's not too much coronavirus around. Why open up? You know, why, why should we do this? Let's just carry on and, and ignore them. Now, the hard reality are that uh, just looking at New Zealand, I mean, its international tourism industry has been absolutely decimated. Same in Australia. Those industries are, and there's no sign of them coming back at the moment. So it's all, if you're not in that industry, it's all well and good to say, well, let's not worry about the rest of the world. But I think we're going to have to at some stage, quite sooner rather than later. We'll have a dispatch from Israel in a moment. But first, here's one from the magazine. Hello, I'm Jane Mulcairns, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As we approach Freedom Day, there are some sobering lessons to be learnt from around the world. Earlier this week, the Dutch Prime Minister had to apologise for lifting restrictions too soon as their infection numbers rocketed to the highest levels all year. We've already heard from America and Australia where life hasn't quite returned to normal. Just four weeks ago, Israel was also celebrating its newfound freedom. Israelis stopped wearing face masks and abandoned all social distancing rules. Around 65% of Israelis have already had both jabs of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. I've had mine myself already by now, I think, five months ago. That's Anshul Pfeffer, a journalist for The Times based in Jerusalem. We're living in Israel right now in a sort of twilight COVID zone. Almost all the restrictions have been removed. There's very, very little serious illness. The last number is about 40 serious cases hospitalised right now. It's a situation that's very different to when we last checked in with Anshul in February. Back then, 
only 20% of the population was double-jabbed, and there are around 8,000 daily cases. So this is a huge improvement. But the arrival of the Delta variant and a new surge in infections has forced the Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, to rethink their strategy. The numbers of new infections are the highest in three months. And Israel is still, in many ways, isolated from the world because the government has postponed plans of allowing non-Israelis to enter. So also, that's paralyzing the tourism industry. A lot of people were thinking of coming on their summer holiday to Israel, and that's not happening yet. Obviously, here we're approaching what we're calling Freedom Day, July the 19th, when you know the final restrictions that are in place will sort of be taken away. We can stop worrying about social distancing as much. We're losing our masks, which feels like a big thing now. You've already gone through all that. We're being told here that all of this is irreversible. Once it's happened, life is back to normal. But I know that in Israel, you've had to reintroduce masks again. I'm just really interested in, in why. So three weeks ago, the last mask regulations were removed. Israelis were no longer required to wear masks anywhere. But about a week and a half ago, when the Delta variant made its, its big appearance here in Israel, they decided to restore the mask requirement. So it's only a week and a half. Yeah, these things are never irreversible, so it seems. Yeah. And on July the 1st, Israel was supposed to open up to the world and foreign travel could have resumed. I mean, Israelis are allowed to travel, but non-Israelis are currently not allowed to enter Israel. And that was postponed till August the 1st, and it may not happen on August the 1st. With the Delta variant and with all the fears about letting people in again, you know, now that you've got the situation under control, that's quite surprising given that you're so far ahead of the world in terms of the vaccine. You know, you managed to roll it out early. Is the worry for those 35% of people who didn't get vaccinated or is the worry also for people who've been vaccinated who might still be vulnerable to the variant? Well, the vaccination, which we know is very efficient and you know, it's in the 90 plus percent efficacy, still hasn't covered everyone. There was a death yesterday of someone who was vaccinated, had, had both jabs. So some people who have been vaccinated will still, you know, if they receive the Delta variant, they could still die. So there's that, there's the 35% who haven't been. And there's also another worry that we don't really know how long the effect of the vaccine remains. So it's still, you know, we're still it's, it's still a very new vaccine. It hasn't, you know, it was only rolled out six months ago in the world. So all these things are, are still very much question marks. That's why Israel has re restored some of the requirements of, uh, of the masking and, and is still not allowing uh, foreigners to enter. For us here, you know, as we're sort of approaching Freedom Day, what can we learn from Israel's experience? I think the first thing is that the word irreversible probably shouldn't be used too much. Good point. We still know so many things about this pandemic. And every time a new variant comes along, you know, we'll have to see if the vaccines currently in use are efficient for that. So the good thing about the Delta variant is that the vaccines seem to be still resistant, in certainly when it comes to serious illness. But the vaccine is less resistant when it comes to infection. So you know, we're seeing new things happen with every variant that comes along. And using big, irreversible words like irreversible may not be the best thing for politicians to do, but that's how the British government wanted it to feel like in the midst of the summer holiday.
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Anshul Pfeffer, The Times correspondent based in Jerusalem, Will Pavia, our man in New York, and Bernard Lagan, Times correspondent down under, who spoke to us from his home in Sydney. You can find all of their work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Sevda Moesari, Asia Fuchs and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>